Ladies and gentlemen, could we, could we please begin this morning's session? And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to Oxford. I am Andrew Hamilton, the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University, and I'm pleased to welcome you here for the Medical Innovations 2010 conference. And there's no question that this exciting conference has come out of a, of a significant new collaboration between the Said Business School's Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation and the George Institute, and includes an impressive array of speakers and moderators that you'll be hearing over the next two days. But let me, on behalf of all of the organizers, thank you for coming and thank you for your involvement in this conference. As many of you know, the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurship was founded to enhance economic literacy among scientists in Oxford, to support technology spin-off and knowledge transfer, and to assist in the development of Oxford entrepreneurs. They have an impressive program of knowledge transfer with over 24,000 people to date from Oxford University and other regional and national organizations attending lectures, seminars, and events such as this one. More specifically, over 3,000 scientists from Oxford University laboratories have attended the center's flagship course known as Building a Business. And building on this success, the center has now reached out to the broader medical community. Why are they branching into innovation in medical science? This is a question that I am sure many of you can intuitively answer. With decreasing resources globally for healthcare and increasing pressure on health systems for a whole range of reasons, innovation will be the key to sustainability in the NHS and beyond. This program today reflects the many facets of innovation in healthcare, from ones that many of you will know about, such as IP, organizational change, and clinical entrepreneurship, to those areas that are intrinsic, but perhaps not, an, not often thought about enough, such as delivery mechanisms for novel drugs and devices, community entrepreneurship, novel financing, and of course, evaluating of novel developments in science and med medicine. This brings me to the George Institute, which we welcome to Oxford University with their new Center for Healthcare Innovation. Where the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation sets a high standard of teaching of innovation, the George Institute sets a very high standard of practice of innovation in healthcare globally. With bases in the UK, China, India, and Australia, the George Institute has more than 50 healthcare projects operating in nearly 50 countries worldwide. The major focus of these projects is on ways to improve the health of disadvantaged populations, the prevention and management of chronic conditions, and innovation in health service delivery. Working with both academics and the health system, such as the NHS in the UK, high-quality evaluation and effective implementation into the broader social and political framework of a country is central to the work of the George Institute. Oxford University is delighted to have the addition of such a group and sees the natural synergies with the Said Business School and other departments of the university with the work that the George Institute is doing. With two such exciting groups stimulating discussion on healthcare innovation, this is set to be a conference that will not just showcase interesting work of many different organizations, but will delve into the depths of 
practical and challenging aspects of innovation in healthcare. I am certain that the conference will be a great success. I wish you a most productive and stimulating couple of days, and I welcome you and open this conference this morning. Thank you all very much. Okay, thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor, for that very warm welcome. And um, we certainly do hope that it will be a very productive uh, two days. My name's Sue Dobson. I'm one of the professors here in the Business School. And I'd like to add my welcome to the Sci Business School here at the University of Oxford. Um, although this building was completed in 2001, thanks to Wafik Saeed, um, management studies has been alive and well in Oxford since 1965, when a group of my entrepreneurial colleagues uh, sought to persuade a then sceptical university and a sceptical vice-chancellor to endorse teaching and research in management studies. And from that has been a number of degrees created and some really interesting research. Unfortunately, we have a very supportive vice-chancellor uh, in our endeavors uh, going forward. And I think the founders of the business school would be very proud to see us host this conference on medical innovation, and especially proud that we are pursuing an international focus for that work. This conference has evolved from a panel discussion, um, How to Be a Medical Entrepreneur, led by Dr. Ken Fleming, the then head of the medical school, and Baroness Susan Greenfield in 2004. This promoted conversations amongst the faculty at Said that focused on what we meant by innovation, and in particular, what were the challenges in diffusing innovations in complex systems such as healthcare. Research began to flourish in this area where colleagues specializing in finance, organizational behavior, strategy, operations management in particular, began to contribute to scholarship in this field. This group were keen to continue these discussions beyond the business school with our colleagues from other departments in the wider university. And to this end, the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Innovation provide a very valuable platform and support. Last year, we launched via the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation a very successful seminar series entitled Medical Innovation that sought to showcase the university's research and practice in this field. It was the positive feedback we got from participants, colleagues in other departments and colleges that caused the center to really work to set up this conference and work very productively with the George Institute and the Biomedical Research Center. Um, the opportunity that um, this provides for multidisciplinary conversations and to learn from practice, I think is a remarkable one uh, and one that I think you'll very much enjoy. So we see this type of event as central to the center's evolving objectives of not just teaching innovation, but practicing it. With keynote speeches, parallel sessions, and entrepreneurship workshops, you'll have the opportunity to be informed, challenged, and engaged around the key issues of innovation in healthcare. We would also, from the business school, like to uh, welcome the George Institute and thank them for their support with this conference and, of course, the Biomedical Research Centre in Oxford for their generous support and involvement, and welcome their very innovative approach to translational research. We have a distinguished cast of speakers and moderators for you today and tomorrow from as far away as Australia, India, and the US, and we thank them very much for being involved. These speakers are drawn from clinical practice, academia, business, the not-for-profit sector, and government. All of them are experts in their field, and many of them top decision and policy makers in the NHS. We are especially grateful to our three distinguished keynote speakers, Professor Peter Peart, Sir William Castell, and Professor Sir John Bell. This conference will close with a very challenging policy debate on how to transform policy and practice through healthcare innovation, and includes a number of eminent and interesting speakers and I hope very much that you'll stay to be a part of that. Your participation really matters, and built into these sessions will be plenty of time for audience debate. The key themes emerging from these debates will be captured and fed back to you following the conference. There are many people to thank for making today possible, 
and we will attend to that, uh, obviously, at the end of the conference, where we will be eliciting your ideas on how to build on this conference and how to sustain what I hope will be a successful network that enables a multidisciplinary uh, practice and learning. Now, I've been given the, the job of uh, communicating a few housekeeping matters to ensure your safety at conference, so please try not to yawn. Uh, but in the event of a fire, a continuous siren will sound, and clearly you must evacuate the building. Um, the assembly points are in the front of the building. Um, please don't leave your valuables uh, unattended. Uh, clearly they'll be removed, and smoking is not permitted, of course. Um, now, having got that uh, over with, um, on to the day's um, pr proceedings. After Peter's uh, keynote address, the session will split at 10 o'clock. Parallel session one will stay in this lecture theatre, so if you're interested in pursuing parallel session one, you stay here. Parallel two, uh, session two will be in the Rhodes Trust lecture theatre, which will be clearly signpost for you. Um, attendees are obviously free to attend what they want. There's no restrictions. The rooms for the sessions are listed in the brochure, uh, and lunch and tea breaks will take place in the, in, the con in the entrance hall where you were for coffee this morning. Um, it's important that we mention the entrepreneurship clinics, uh, which will run at the same time as the parallel sessions. These are led by ISIS Innovation and NHS Innovation Southeast. If you would like a one-on-one -on -one session with either of them to discuss an idea, then please visit their stands at the end of the entrance hall uh, and a confidential session can be arranged. Um, finally, if anyone would like to ask a question at the question time plenary session on day two that I've already mentioned, there is actually a form in your pack where you can fill out and uh, put in a box on the registration table. And these questions will be uh, pre-selected and obviously we'll try to accommodate as many as possible. And so I hope very much that you'll take up that offer as we'd really like this session to be very interactive and stimulating. So I think from the Vice-Chancellor and I, uh, we both very much welcome you and, as I said, very much hope you have an enjoyable conference. Thank you very much. Okay, so perhaps we can then uh, start proceedings by asking uh, Peter, Peter Peart, um, to kick off the first session. Um, Peter, again, you'll, in your packs, there should be quite a, a detailed description of, of speakers. Um, but Peter is a professor of global health and director of the Institute of Global Health at Imperial College in London. He was founding executive director of UNAIDS and undersecretary general uh, of the United Nations from 1995 until 2008 and Associate Director of the Global Programme on AIDS uh, at the World Health Organization. And Peter's going to give a keynote address entitled Harnessing Innovation uh, to Meet the Challenges of a Changing Global Health Landscape. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you, Sue, and good morning, everybody. Um, it's really a pleasure to, to open this, uh, this conference, and I should say that the, the synergy between the Site Business School and the George Institute promises to be absolutely um, fantastic uh, in for global health, and, and also global health meaning health everywhere, including in this country. And I'm really looking forward to a, a productive meeting and a productive collaboration. We're in perhaps the um, largest and fastest epidemiologic transition uh, in terms of health, and uh, the world is changing, and so are health and, and disease. And one could say that the new is alive, but the old is not dead yet. So we have um, still a major unfinished agenda in terms of, uh, of health, global health, um, which is dominated by uh, infectious diseases, maternal mortality, child health, reproductive health, malnutrition, and access to or lack of access to primary health care. Um, 
And this is particularly the case in um, the, uh, um, sorry, this is particularly the case in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, and part of Southeast Asia. So that's the agenda that traditionally global health or tropical medicine or international health or geographic medicine, all terms that uh, have evolved over time, have been dealing with. And traditionally also there has been, on the one hand, uh, a lot of innovation in terms of technology, but the main challenge here has been delivery of that technology and delivery of social change rather than new technologies, although we could still use a few more uh, good vaccines, for example, and uh, preventive technology. Um, but today, the landscape is increasingly dominated by uh, different issues. Of course, as I mentioned, there is a, um, an unfinished agenda, but uh, the biggest epidemic today, or pandemic, I should say, is a pandemic of various chronic or non-communicable diseases, also mental health, which is probably the most neglected of all the neglected diseases, uh, worldwide, I should say. Population is getting older and older, and in an accelerated way, particularly in middle-income countries, particularly in Asia. We've got a formidable challenge of um, urbanization and uh, people living in slums. Over half of the world's population now lives, are li is living in uh, big cities. Climate change, there was a whole series in The Lancet at the end of last year, um, pointing out to the major health implications of climate change. Um, access to water is going to be one of the big political issues and of the big survival issues affecting health, of course. And let's not forget that we still have a population growth that in some countries, particularly in the poorest countries, is out of control. And when you compound all this, urbanization, climate change, lack of water, access, and population, um, this creates a cocktail for not only new epidemics, but also uh, a formidable challenge in terms of access to health and health care. New prevention and treatment technologies are coming up, um, and many new actors, which is a good sign. I know many of my friends in the development agencies uh, international or national here, they complain that there are too many actors in health. I think pluralism and its multiple actors is a good thing uh, because the alternative would be what a monolithic or a monopolistic type of agency that um, would be a disaster for, for health in general. Um, the World Economic Forum um, <coughs> last year and the year before identified in its global risk landscape analysis chronic disease as one of the major uncertainties or major risks with um, not uncertainty, sorry, uh, major risks with um, a great likelihood of be a very severe risk for the future and a growing one. Um, as you can see here, the, um, here we are with chronic diseases. Um, there are various economic risks, of course, and pandemics, for example, the more traditional um, realm of uh, uh, global health is also there with, with less likelihood, uh, but also equal uh, severity. Um, here you see the uh, likely evolution of um, the causes of death and uh, uh, projected causes of death, high-income countries, middle-income countries, low-income countries. And uh, 2004, 2015, it's getting close, and 2030. And when you look at the low-income countries, a traditional focus of uh, global health efforts, you see a decline in the cause of death by AIDS, TB, and malaria because of increasingly more effective programs, other infectious diseases on the decline, maternal mortality, perinatal and nutritional conditions uh, declining, and if there would be more contraception that would decline even faster. Um, Middle-income countries, we're already in, an, uh, in a situation where infectious diseases are a minority of the, uh, the causes of death. And for disclosure, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I'm a microbiologist by training and uh, infectious disease physician. So, um, but I know, I'm really convinced that the, the major challenge in 
uh, global health in general is going to be in non-communicable diseases and chronic diseases because, and chronic care because AIDS, for example, where there is treatment, is becoming a chronic uh, condition. So the landscape is um, evolving in a fairly dramatic way. And yet our um, systems, our healthcare systems, for example, they were not designed for chronic diseases. They were designed for acute illnesses. And their financing um, mechanisms were also designed for uh, acute diseases and not for chronic conditions. Now, chronic diseases, non-communicable diseases, are not necessarily behaving exactly the same way all over the world. Here you see for uh, Asia, um, diabetes, uh, increase in diabetes between 1981 and 2008 for India, China, Malaysia, and Singapore. And that, here you see the, um, um, the um, uh, evolution of the GDP per capita in a recent article in the, in the Lancet. And uh, what's striking is that uh, in Asia, that diabetes and cardiovascular disease afterwards are occurring at a much younger age than in, uh, in, the, in Western countries, high-income countries. Um, genetic factors are um, involved, and you see an incredibly uh, rapid increase in diabetes, and because it's occurring at a younger age, uh, cardiovascular uh, complications are also uh, more common. So this is a, one of the big, big challenges, and yet it's a problem with a solution, and the solutions are not high-tech solutions in general. Um, it's very straightforward, tobacco control, salt and alcohol reduction, healthy diet and weight control, physical activity, <laughs> indoor pollution reduction, and then we have polypill and so on, which I will mention. But we need innovation to bring these um, behavioral changes and social changes um, to, um, to people because that's what, we, um, that's what is going to make a difference. Now, why is innovation so important? We just heard it from the Vice Chancellor. Um, and from a global health perspective, of course, there are, I would say, four main goals. One is to improve the quality of care, but also of prevention. Most innovation conferences basically nearly exclusively deal with, um, with care, with uh, treatment, and not with prevention. And I hope that this conference will be a bit different than judged by the program. That's the case. So that's very encouraging. Secondly, besides improving the quality, and better outcomes is uh, increasing access. Coverage of many of the uh, existing interventions is still very low and hence um, limited impact. Thirdly, I'm deeply convinced that the current human resource crisis that we're seeing in uh, developing countries, but also more and more in high-income countries, and which is now taking on a global dimension that the solution is not going to be by training more people, which, of course, we need to do, investing in education, in training. But it's going to take decades and decades and decades to train enough healthcare workers, professionals, nurses, managers, doctors, and so on. Um, and this is where innovation and technology, particularly from the IT side, may um, really make the biggest difference, provided the medical profession is not going to be a major obstacle to it. Um, for corporatist reasons. And another objective, of course, is always reducing cost. Now, what's in the pipeline? And I'll try to group it into three categories. One is the whole area of information technology, robotics, virtual reality, and imaging. And the health sector is about, I think, 10 years behind in terms of using information technology outside improving hospital management and administration, where we're all plagued by incredible administrative and bureaucratic, um, you know, say, burdens. But when it comes to applications, I've not seen yet an iPhone where, you know, one of the applications, one of the hundreds of applications you can buy today, uh, where there's a health application. And, uh, and this is what we need. This is bringing health and technology together and bringing it in the community in addition to um, using it for, for management in, in, the, in the hospital and for administration. And probably in the developing world, the mobile phone is going to be 
the major instrument uh, for bringing innovation to the people. Um, and there are several projects, and we're, we will hear some of that uh, today and tomorrow. Social networking is a formidable instrument that has been underutilized, particularly for HIV, for HIV prevention, for other disease prevention. I read this morning that um, Facebook has now more hits than Google for the first time. It was just passed by, and uh, uh, I don't know when people have the time to do all that, but the fact is that it is being used, and it's uh, very popular. Um, I'll say a few words about sensors that can be used to detect changes in uh, biomarkers on, and for monitoring of patients. We'll soon have uh, mega wireless uh, covering entire cities. Um, GIS, geographic information systems, heavily underutilized outside uh, epidemiological work, but could be used far better in, let's say, health-related marketing and uh, evaluation. Agent-based analysis and modeling, very powerful, being used for in modeling and projections, but we could use that also for uh, integrating information and so on. Robotics, I will talk about that in virtual reality. And we, what could be very promising is small user-friendly imaging, uh, for example, when it comes to, um, to uh, ultrasound and monitoring um, pregnancies and so on, and diagnosis in, um, in less than sophisticated environments. We hear a lot about... Uh, IT technology, communications, and it's the integration of the whole si of all the, the gadgets, if you want, into a system that is going to make a difference. There are many sensors developed, there are many devices, but uh, what will be the breakthrough, I think, is when we integrate it all and when it's user-friendly, when I can use it. I can probably be um, part of the idiot-proof tests for that. Some exciting work going on also at Imperial in terms of robotics for surgery and simulation. I won't go into uh, details. It's going to revolutionize surgery. But let's keep global health in mind here. Um, for example, we're starting a program in, uh, in Rwanda with uh, Lordaz's um, surgical team and where we will be using virtual reality. I still use it, I call it video games. Um, you know, where instead of shooting somebody, you know, you can do, uh, you can simulate an, an, an operation, surgery. You feel the pressure, you feel everything. When you cut, you bleed, you kill the patient, you survive, patient survives and all that. And that can be used in a very uh, cost-efficient way and effective way to train people, healthcare workers, to do three, four or five standardized uh, uh, surgical interventions. That's one example of addressing shortage in, um, in health manpower. Another uh, group of uh, innovation in, on the technology side is biotechnology, of course, genomics. I won't go into details. We hear a lot about it. Um, and what I would like to point there is that it's not only about um, what we would think of uh, health as such, but also in food. There's a, a lot of research going on in, in companies uh, that are from the food and beverage industry, for example, on taste, how they can replace certain um, you know, ingredients that are not good for, for our health by others um, and, and that's the kind of technology and agriculture and food that we need. We also are going to see hopefully um, more and more um, combinations of, pre of prevention methods. On the one hand aiming at behavior change, on the other hand for those who are at highest risk for developing um, certain diseases, in this case, for example, it comes to, um, to cardiovascular uh, disease, uh, polypills, combining um, several uh, pharmaceuticals which can prevent um, the development of, the, um, of mortality and, and uh, bad disease outcomes. This is an example of a study that uh, <clears throat> the George Institute has launched um, together with some of our colleagues at uh, Imperial College and is a worldwide um, effort. And then the third technological category has to do with miniaturization and nanotechnology. When I was a child, I, I really enjoyed reading um, old magazines at my grandmother's place, and they were from the 30s, 1930s, 
And there was one series about how the world would look like in 1960. This was from 1930s. And uh, it was basically all wrong. Um, and, but uh, the one thing that they had not um, foreseen at all was the fact that things would become smaller and smaller. The transistor, I mean, this, what, think of the first computers. When I was doing my PhD and I had to do some uh, data analysis, it was a room full with a computer, which things that you can probably nearly do now on your BlackBerry. Um, so this is also opening enormous technological um, opportunities. And um, I think the cell phone is a good example of that. In global health are in, and health in developing countries, traditionally there's been an aversion of two things. One is technology. We have to go for third-rate technology for third-world countries. And secondly, it's private sector and business. It's kind of two hyperimmune reactions that you find often in, in this uh, environment. And, um, and the, the, the prevailing um, paradigm is that first you need a, everybody needs a landline, and then we can start talking about the cell phone. This is the linear development paradigm. And what are we seeing today that this uh, penetration of the cell phone is like, what, over half of the world's population. And I think this kind of miniaturization is helping that. And here I see that the, the impact of this kind of technology for global health could be absolutely uh, fantastic with, as I mentioned, simple imaging instruments, point-of-care diagnostics, which can be used by um, healthcare workers that are not necessarily extremely well uh, trained um, with, uh, and which will also make what we're doing more cost-effective. Lab on a chip is, uh, is already existing. Delivery of pharmaceuticals in, in the body, in this case delivery, and even water disinfectant, for example, through nanoparticles, and which could be very, uh, very cheap. The problem we are facing uh, for as clinicians is going to be how to integrate, what to do with all that information. Uh, today, a patient file is already, let's say, in a typical university or third care hospital, is already extremely difficult to, um, to master and to integrate. And, uh, and sometimes the whole attention goes to, that, to the paper there and not to even looking at the patient. But anyway, this, uh, the, um, the kind of information that we will get is going to be formidable. And there will be specialists for each of these boxes. Who is going to put that together? How will that be integrated so that uh, we will go to better patient care? Enormous ch challenge. So far for technology innovation. Equally important is business innovation. Business innovation, um, which has, I think has had less attention in the world of health, but of course has more attention in the business school. That's why I think you know, business school and the George Institute is a very powerful uh, combination here. Business innovation for several years, particularly stimulated by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, has given rise to a number of product development partnerships um, of all kinds. Uh, for, they started for, for HIV, HIV vaccines, um, but uh, PATH was a pioneer in this um, before the word public-public uh, uh, private partnerships even existed. Um, and uh, they are, I think the jury is still out in uh, how uh, effective they will be and uh, how much they will contribute. But I think they're particularly useful there where there is market failure, um, where there is a, um, a market in high-income countries. I'm not convinced that they provide any value added. Big Pharma is also changing. Um, I remember the days when I was in UNAIDS in the late uh, 1990s and early 2000. It was really a big fight to come to differential pricing. Uh, there were fights around intellectual property and so on. And um, times have changed. This is from a speech by uh, Andy Whitty, the CEO of uh, JSK at, uh, at Harvard, um, where he set some new um, agenda for his company. And the first one, uh, the first item is a more flexible approach to intellectual property. I know at universities and academics I discover now there's 
absolute fascination with intellectual property, everybody hoping to win the lottery. Um, but the world is moving slowly, perhaps beyond that, and particularly in when it comes to, to global health. And I'm not absolutely not against intellectual property. That's not, um, I think it's absolutely essential. But we'll have to have a more a la carte approach to intellectual property in function of what the issue is and what the potential is. And that's one of the, piece, the um, points of Andy Whitty. And uh, proposing also, for example, a, a patent pool for diseases for least developed countries. Um, so industry is changing in terms of business model. This is a report from uh, Ernst & Young uh, saying that, um, you know, pharma will need to make alliances with new partners, particularly from the IT sector, large retailers, telecommunication firms. And uh, this year at, in Davos at the World Economic Forum, um, in, the, in the global um, the health governors uh, group, um, we had a joint meeting between the health governors and the IT governors. And that was the first time. And it was actually, I think, the most productive of all the um, meetings that was there because it was new. And I think that um, because the interest of IT companies uh, see also, rightly so, an expanding market, we will see more innovation coming in this, uh, in this area. Now, where will innovation come from? The center of the world is moving towards Asia, clearly. And for those who have been in Beijing, there is a point near the Temple of Heaven that is, is the center of the world, literally, for the Chinese. And um, so who is setting the agenda is changing today. Up to now, the whole agenda has been set in the Western world. That is changing. And I think that the, in, we have a better chance for, in, for actually delivering and introducing this new technology in uh, middle-income countries, in the emerging markets, um, maybe also because there is less of an entrenched uh, interest in when it comes to healthcare. Third area of innovation is innovation of delivery. This is the weakest area of innovation today. And it's also delivery of innovation. So we have delivery of innovation and innovation of delivery. Because if we concentrate all our efforts in developing new products, maybe new business models, uh, maybe new and, and new financing, the products may still end up on the shelf if we don't invest in innovation of delivery. Because clearly the current systems are failing to a large extent and failing particularly the poor. Yesterday, um, PepsiCo uh, announced a, um, I think, a, a very innovative um, change in its, in its uh, business model. Um, and that is to, oops, sorry. It announced that it will stop uh, selling full sugar soft drinks uh, to primary and secondary schools. By 2012, okay, we wish it would happen today, but it's a major step. And it's, this is an example of... Um, delivery through a company that is delivering the goods anyway. It is just changing what it sells. And uh, this could have far more impact than, certainly, than many PSAs and billboards and so on. This is for obesity. When it comes to undernutrition, there's another very innovative delivery model, and that's an alliance between the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh and Danone. Danone, you know, yogurt and so on, uh, from France. And uh, here it is a unique community-based model where business principle, it's a business, but a business for the poor, with the poor, uh, based on the Grameen principles and um, addressing in that sense not only poverty but also um, undernutrition, malnutrition. Also delivery um, of uh, behavior change is possible if we use business type of principles. This is a program um, uh, called AVAHAN. It's about HIV prevention, reaching very difficult to reach populations. Uh, injecting drug users, sex workers, uh, men of sex with men in India. Many of them are underground or are certainly marginalized in population. And uh, this is a program that is run by people who used to work in McKinsey, uh, where I guess tired of doing the consultancy and applied very 
um, outcome-oriented um, business principles with constant feedback, real-time type of feedback, and, uh, and, and you can see the results uh, reaching together with the government of India, the part of it, but up to 100% of uh, populations that traditionally we thought, you know, they're kind of impossible to work with. Um, I'm not sure that anybody who went to the business school would have dreamt to spend the days trying to figure out how to use, how to reach um, uh, drug users in, uh, in some part of India. So. Now, can innovation be delivered in, in poor countries? This has been one of the biggest obstacles that I find in the global health community. Uh, we're saying, you know, it's fine, but it's too expensive, this innovation, this technology, we can't deliver it, and look, and there's no electricity. What's the situation? Look at Tanzania. Electricity coverage is, I think, is something like still 25, 30%, particularly in rural areas. Um, it's based on generators with um, high cost of, of fuels. Solar panels, technology is there. It's only, are only occasionally there, and, and, and a lot of the time they don't function. And yet, um, all villages have a bar with television. Last time I was there in a rural area, everybody, the whole village was watching Arsenal versus I can't remember much. They all know they follow the football competition in, 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 in the UK. Um, 70 to 80% coverage of mobile phones in a country like Tanzania. And you've got 3G mobile coverage in, in all large urban areas, which is much, much better than in Manhattan, for example, where your phone, your cell phone, um, disappears uh, now and then, or the, the connection. So there is the potential there if we um, are um, using the technology, the entry points that uh, the market and the people have found in a kind of spontaneous way. But there's also pricing, of course. It's not only using technology and technology channels, but the pricing. And uh, here our experience in, in, in AIDS is such that um, it is possible to bring down new technology in terms of pricing, to bring it down uh, to levels that are um, you know, acceptable in poor uh, countries. And the deal that we made was the following one. The deal was, okay, in return for um, a monopoly, intellectual property protection in high-income markets, uh, in, in return for speaking up in favor of intellectual property protection and in return for making sure that there is no reimportation of the cheap version into high-income markets, um, companies will provide at cost plus, nobody's asking that they would provide for free, these drugs uh, to um, low-income markets. And a change was made in the um, TRIPS agreements, the trade-related intellectual property uh, um, rules uh, of the World Trade Organization in Doha in 2002, uh, saying that for public health emergencies, uh, developing countries, least developed countries, can import from a third country generic medicines, which are still under patent, provided some compensation is given to the patent holder, etc. It's, it's fairly complicated, but it's doable. And the result was spectacular. This, these are the prices for um, a one-year antiretroviral therapy in Uganda in 1998. Uh, when, uh, with UNH, we started with so-called drug access initiative with five pharmaceutical companies, and then another initiative with more companies, and then with WHO also. And you see that today the prices come down to about 85 to 100 US dollars per person per year. In other words, it's about... 20 cents uh, per, uh, per day for, um, for keeping somebody alive in it, although we have to include um, other costs as well. And the, the major decre decreases in prices were really um, obtained through negotiation, through political work, through activism, and uh, afterwards the major uh, funding mechanisms were established. But it was difficult to establish a funding mechanism when the unit price was, uh, cost was far too high because then said it's just not feasible, um, we are not going to have any impact. Now, much of what we're doing in innovation is really lost in translation. So the, the, the translation from innovation, from technology, from, um, from evidence, from discovery, 
into uh, policy and then from policy into uh, implementation is a real major issue. And again, we don't attach uh, enough import, um, importance to it. Um, many uh, immunization campaigns, including in this country, have been derailed by rumors. And uh, business schools are a lot into rumors because it's driving so much behavior and uh, uh, from the, um, the stock market to whether I want my child to be immunized or not. And, um, and there, one can categorize that, that uh, in, in my institute we have a whole program on, on, on rumors and, and, and global health, uh, particularly as it relates to, uh, to immunization. And we react often, uh, we, I mean, we public health people, or, oh, that's irrational, we should, you know, we should give more information. That can make things even worse. So we need to understand what's behind it, and uh, uh, often it's conspiracy theories and so on. And, um, and there are some real issues for new technologies. There are uncertainties that we have to deal with. There are unclear risks of new technologies. For example, nanotechnology, we may need new safety norms because we're in a different category in terms that we can't extrapolate because we're working at the molecular levels. Regulatory systems in many countries are very weak. Risk perceptions are also very heavily culturally defined. Look at uh, uh, GMOs, genetically modified food organisms. In a continent, in my country, I'm from Belgium, is um, uh, the majority, overwhelming majority of people are dead against it. Politically, it's a very hot potato. In other countries, it's not an issue. Now, to end, a few lessons from, um, from AIDS. I was asked to, uh, to reflect on that. Um, first of all, a technological innovation was a true game-changer in the response to AIDS. And that was a discovery that we can treat AIDS. That, that happened in 1996, and within a few months' time, the uh, antiretroviral drugs were uh, available all over high-income countries. Also, thanks to at least where there is a social security system or a national health service and, and so on. And it changed completely the life of those who were infected. I saw patients as an infectious disease physician until 1995, patients with AIDS, and all my patients died, all 100%. Today, that uh, mortality has collapsed completely, uh, thanks to that. But um, it took about 10 years <coughs> Before, <coughs> sorry, 10 years before, about 1 million Africans with HIV were actually uh, having access to antiretroviral therapy. Now, I can say that's long, and it's very long when you, you're infected. It's short when you consider that uh, the, the evidence that smoking causes lung cancer, back to publication 1950 of uh, Dolan Hill, and, uh, and that we're still having um, even legislation in many countries that is not uh, um, enforced uh, in, in to limit tobacco consumption. So, but technological innovation can be a game changer. Secondly, um, we had to work on innovation in funding, in pricing, and in delivery. And it's equally important as the technological innovation. That's why it took 10 years to provide antiretroviral therapy, or more than 10 years, in low- and middle-income countries. And the uh, innovation in funding was necessary because we had to go beyond the existing pie of international development work, uh, uh, bud budgets. And then that brings me to politics. It's really politics that um, made a difference. And here I say, good politics, bad politics, paper I once wrote. And uh, whenever we've made progress in, in uh, response to AIDS, it's because thanks to good politics, in other words, good politics meaning we um, leaders talking out, uh, speaking up about uh, condoms, for example, but also um, creating special um, funding mechanisms and so on, bad politics, people who don't want to talk about it, a president Mbeki uh, who says that HIV is not causing AIDS and that it's the drugs that are killing people, etc. 
There was enormous resistance, and it's interesting to see resistance. When you talk to um, a physician, resistance, they think of antiviral resistance, the virus. But it's really resistance of the experts, public health experts, development experts all say, oh, um, health services in developing countries, they're understaffed, they're not functioning well, the drugs are too expensive, there's no mechanism, etc. 123 reasons why all this is impossible. And these 123 reasons are still very valid today. And yet, um, it was by acting um, and not taking no for an answer that uh, we could make a difference. Fifth point is go beyond the traditional health actors. Health have so many determinants that we've got to use and to involve the various actors. And that landscape today is, is, is changing. Um, but um, at the level of a country, the finance minister is as important, if not more important, is more important politically definitely than the health minister, whose budget depends on the uh, finance minister. But also think of what a, um, a PepsiCo just announced. I mean, that's not a traditional health actor. And then lastly, two points. One is what I mentioned, nothing for the people without the people. In this, what do I mean by that? We often develop these policy guidelines in a very rational way, based on evidence and so on, and then try to shovel it through the throat of people without doing some of the basic marketing and pre-marketing research and trying to ask what do you feel. No serious company who's dealing with, you know, selling consumer goods would would behave like that. In health, we just we'll rely on the expert. Trust me, I'm an expert. And, um, and then we're surprised that it doesn't take, that people are resistant, that um, the interventions, and it's particularly true in prevention, are not uh, meeting with lots of enthusiasm. So this has been a hard, we learned that the hard way in AIDS. And then finally, I must say that in AIDS, we, we had a crisis approach. But the epidemic is not over. Half a million new infections in South Africa last year, since we're in the Nelson Mandela Auditorium here. And um, despite all the progress, it's not over. And the uh, progress we can see here, um, and these are my last slides, um, spectacular. Uh, close to 5 million people now are on antiretroviral therapy, which means about half who need it, coming from a uh, few hundred thousand in 2000. Spectacular uh, increase in funding, and you can see retrospectively where the tipping point was. The tipping point was in 2001. This is when it all came together, when the stars were aligned. The politics, the technology, and the innovation, the, um, the funding, um, and, uh, and this is what then you see retrospectively that we saw suddenly uh, a major increase in in funding, which has been determined. But we had to deal with a lot of um, irrational behavior, if you want, but particularly overcoming political obstacles. The biggest one, the two biggest ones, I would say, were in South Africa and in the former Soviet Union. South Africa, because of the denialism around AIDS as such and about treatment, so hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of a delay in introducing this antiretroviral therapy because of uh, beliefs at the top of the country. Um, and in the former Soviet Union, because of a refusal to deal with injecting drug use problem and with a refusal to, um, to provide substitution therapy. A technical issue, but with, which would have saved many lives. The result of all that is that the curve of mortality for AIDS is going down. Um, less people become infected. And so we do have um, some significant impact of um, innovation at many, many different levels. Um, so let me conclude that by saying that um, I think with AIDS we've shown that um, also in global health and in a health issue that is affecting mostly low-income countries that innovation can change everything. We do it. But provided we are uh, investing as much in, the, in technology innovation as in the business models, the financing models, and in the um, um, delivery, uh, in innovation of delivery, and that it's time that 
the global health community now embraces innovation, the technology side and the business side, well, as at the same time also embracing social change and uh, making sure that what we do is firmly rooted in communities. So it is a package deal, or otherwise we won't have that impact. Thank you very much. I thought we had ten minutes or what? No, how we have that? Yeah, there are. I think that's a very a key question, and we need to move to that phase now. Um, and um, there are some examples. Uh, for example, again in, in Rwanda, uh, which is uh, one of the poorest countries in, in Africa but as one of the best uh, penetrations of uh, the mobile phone. And uh, the, um, the public sector is already using um, mobile phone for chronic uh, treatment, uh, for TB, tuberculosis, and for, for HIV treatment. Uh, so that's a very simple way of uh, reminding people to take their uh, drugs, etc., etc., and go on. So that's an, uh, an NHS I, I found out myself as a patient that uh, that's also happening here. Um, but it can go further and in terms of uh, messages. But I think the next step is to have, for example, what's possible is a, a microchip in every pill, um, which uh, once you swallow it, emits a, a signal to a sensor and then it goes to a cell phone and et cetera. For chronic, it's particularly for chronic treatment, I think, be very good but also for um, quality assurance um, and supporting health workers. But I think it would be a fantastic device for um, <coughs> decreasing the burden on physicians and nurses to, uh, to do all kinds of very mechanistic type of um, medical act and, and work, which uh, you don't need a, a, a medical diploma for that. But I think we need to do, we need to learn while we're doing it. But there is a, an interest now from um, some of the operators. And, and I think the key will be is not those who are, um, to involve those who are into applications. Um, and we need to create that forum, and I think this is the forum. Um, I think the appetite is starting to come. And uh, in French, they say, la petite vient en mangeant. The, the, the appetite comes while eating. And uh, that's why I was mentioning the World Economic Forum in Davos, where for the first time this year, I found that there was that appetite from both sides. Th these were the like, CEOs of pharmaceutical companies and for health maintenance organizations and so on. And, um, uh, and the Cisco's and uh, Qualcomm and all that, the CEOs were there. Um, and in countries, I see the appetite, particularly in Asia, um, and, uh, and in a country like, uh, like Rwanda. But we'll have to create incentives, and it will have to be linked with uh, new, um, new financing, you know, financing mechanism. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes, I was uh, when I, I was on the board member of the Global Fund uh, fight HTB malaria, where we discussed that, and I think that um, I'm in favor of trying it out, and it has to be very carefully monitored, as what I think is often a weakness of the new initiatives, and that's another lesson I should have put on the slide about AIDS that. Often we started doing things, we jumped into the water and didn't really, um, we're not very rigorous enough in terms of the metrics and of uh, evaluating whether, what kind of impact we had. And uh, I think for malaria it is uh, an example of where um, the combination therapy is what we need, um, is that in the, we have to make sure that we can get it into the private sector, and this is one of the, uh, the aspects that the, let's call it, global international community will uh, subsidize um, the drugs 
to, so that the private sector will sell them at lower price. We went a very different way when it came to antiretrovirals. And uh, I'm, I don't know enough whether with malaria one, uh, drugs one could have gone the way of negotiating an overall price reduction uh, per se at the source um, and with generic production. But the big difference is that for antiretrovirals there is a big market in high-income countries. There are about uh, 2 million people on antiretroviral therapy in, uh, no, sorry, 600,000 or 2 million on antiretroviral therapy in high-income countries. So that's a market, whereas for malaria we don't have that. So I, I don't know. Um, well, I would, I'd like to hear what you think about it. it, it yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, so there'll be lots of opportunities to carry on debates and questions. And again, thank you very much.